did. But this is, this is the part I was going to mention. So if you go to our website, well, we actually have some of these physical copies out in the lobby. It's called the Holy Spirit Study Guide. And we've developed it. It was actually developed by Pastor Chuck Smith at Calvary Chapel. And we've kind of fine-tuned some things. Um, but anyway, it's available in physical form where you go to our website. And as you go to our homepage, on the right, there's these three bars called a menu bar. Click on that. Click on resources. The resource page will come up. And you scroll down. And you can find this particular study on the web page in a, in a PDF format. Or you can just work through it there. I encourage you because... This particular study guide helps us to understand not only the person of God in, in regards to the person of the Holy Spirit, but also how he empowers people, how he gifts people, the, the various gifts and how they're utilized, and, and a lot of stuff that I just am not going to be able to cover in, in one service or one, at one time. And so I mentioned it because I will be uh, referring to um, some of the content in regards to today's study. So today we're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. The series, we I've referred to it as called out, called up, God's invitation to live and love at a higher level. And the point of that is we're called out of the world. That's the Greek word ekklesia. That's what we call the church. We were in the world, but then he brought his truth to us. Responding to his grace at an individual level, each person that responded to his grace agreed that they need forgiveness, that God was right about their personal sin, that only he could forgive them. As they received this forgiveness and received what the Bible tells you and I, a new life, born again, born of the Spirit, that basically speaks of we're called out of this world. But we're not called out just to get by. We're called out and called up. In the sense of not physically, but in the sense of looking to him and looking beyond this horizontal plane in this level and knowing how to live in this world, but not of this world. You used to live in this world and you weren't born again. You weren't born of the spirit. But when you became a true believer, literally when God gave you this new life, you, you were invited to live in love at a higher level. And the truth is, historically for 2,000 years, not all Christians have chose to live at a higher level. Many have chose to live at a, what the, we're going to see from the study even today and in um, chapter 3. Uh, uh, there's a carnal level that some Christians live at. And he's called us to live and love at a higher level. It's for his glory. And so let me just start by intro. We'll read. Uh, we'll look at a few things. We'll read the passage and then we'll pray. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We've seen that there were quarrels, contentions among the people. It was actually verified, if you would. Uh, Paul did a first century fact check and found out from Chloe's household that there was actually these arguments and these separations. And people were saying, well, I'm of Paul and I follow Peter and I follow this guy. And so these contentions, these quarrels, were prideful contentions that produced divisions. And it's really sad. It's actually, you know, remember, God is opposed to the complaining and arguing that divide his people. You've seen it from the Old Testament, and we see it true even in the New Testament. He's, he's against, he's opposed to that. So much that he instructs us actually to reject a divisive person who will not receive instruction. It's worded this way in the, um, I believe it's called the ERV, or if I get the easy reader version. Give a warning to all those who cause arguments. 
If they continue to cause trouble after a second warning, then don't associate with them. What? What? How could that be? We're friendly people. How is that to be? And he's basically saying, if, if this is you know, creeping in and causing these things and is constantly the complaint, address it. Politely deal with it, but hold the line as well. Because those things creep in, and it happened in the early church. You know, 1 Corinthians in chapter 1 addresses the divisiveness that creeps in. 1 Corinthians chapter 3 calls it carnality. And specifically in verse 3, it says this, this is present. He, Paul is saying to the church then, what he'd say to you and me now, there's time, I wanted to talk to you about more spiritual things, but I couldn't address them. Because I had to address this other thing that's at a, at a horizontal, what the Bible calls a carnal level. Well, what we're going to see today, we have chapter 1 addressing it, chapter 3 addressing it. And here in the latter part of chapter 2, we're going to see how to break that pattern. How to change or make the change from earthly wisdom to heavenly wisdom. So will you join me in chapter 2? beginning in verse 6. We'll read through verse 16. We'll then pray, and then we'll work through verse by verse some some key points that are embedded within this portion of Scripture we'll read today. However, we speak wisdom among those who are mature, yet not the wisdom of this age, nor of the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. But we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the ages for our glory, which none of the rulers of this age knew. For had they known, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Verse 9. But as it is written, I has not seen, nor ear heard, nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. But God has revealed them to us through his Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, yes, the deep things of God. For what man knows the things of a man except the Spirit of the man which is in him? Even so, no one knows the things of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might know the things that have been freely given to us by God. Verse 13. These things we also speak, not in words which man's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Spirit teaches, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. But the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. But he who is spiritual judges all things, yet he himself is rightly judged by no one. For who has known the mind of the Lord, that he may instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. Let's pray. God, as we would approach this passage, even as its content conveys to us, it, it's not just our intellect, our natural thought processes that will reveal truth. It's you, God. You reveal truth to us. It's your desire that we would know your word and walk according to your truth. You are the one that empowers us to live that way. You are the one that invites us to live that way. And you teach us what that way looks like. And I would ask God today, as we would approach your word, as we would work through this portion, Holy Spirit, you would make known to each one of us, individually, the application, that you would reveal reveal to us each the encouragement and the correction that comes from your word, that comes from your presence. Teach us this day, O God, for your glory and our joy. 
In your name, Jesus. Amen. All right, let's glance back at verse 6. Paul has reasoned with them as we looked last week. And he said, listen, when I came to you guys, I didn't come with oratory skills. I didn't come as one who can be persuading you with the logic of the land. There is an element that we do reason with people. Paul, just before he went to Corinth, was in Athens in chapter 18 of Acts, the book of Acts. And when he got to Athens, he, he went into the city, and as he's waiting for his comrades to, catch, to get there, and he goes through the city, and he takes note, and he observes how they culturally got, did things. He even noticed that they had this, this statue, this idol to the unknown God, because they worship so many different gods. They're like, wait a minute. What if we miss the really mad one? What if we don't, we don't acknowledge that one that could really like torch the place? So they literally built this statue to the unknown God. And so Paul says, hey, let me tell you about the one you don't know. And he was actually at a point of reason, this place they all gathered, the Areopagus, Mars Hill, and he reasoned with them. But he didn't reason according to the wisdom of this world. There, there's two types of wisdom. We've looked at that as we've been going through this particular letter. You find it in the book of James. It speaks of a earthly wisdom, which I'll call horizontal. I just think that's a good way to kind of process and, and see the variation. There's earthly wisdom, and there's heavenly wisdom, which I think of as vertical. Heavenly wisdom, interestingly enough, has been incrementally revealed. And so as you see in this text, we speak wisdom among those who are mature, yet not the wisdom of this age, nor of the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. But we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery. The Bible, when it speaks of a mystery, it speaks of a previously hidden truth, especially in the New Testament. You and I live in a time that those in the Old Testament didn't quite understand. They knew of the Messiah, the, the prophet spoken of even in Genesis 3. They knew of this one to come, but they, they were told in, in, I believe it's First Peter, that they kind of scratched their heads and longed to understand this time of grace that was spoken of. How is this all going to fit? The Messiah is going to come, and then this is going to happen, but how does this work? And it, and it wasn't really, literally, I would suggest to you, until after the resurrection, that the, the previously hidden truth was opened up. See, the, the Old Testament saints and those that lived before the cross, they couldn't figure out a suffering Savior concept. They didn't understand how this ruler to be, this Messiah, this, this Jewish leader who would be above any other leader, how that, that person would, would be punished and beaten. And they didn't understand a first coming and his return. And so they, they struggled. But you and I, now we have the mystery. The previously hidden truth has been unveiled. It's been opened up for you and I to see. So, and that's what Paul's conveying to, to those in uh, Corinth. You know, lest we think this is historical and not so applicational, let me give you a quick thought and a history of Corinth, if you would, not so much chronology, but value. They were very affluent. They, they had plenty of business opportunities, a lot of ways to make money, much like what we experience in our culture. They were very immoral. Because of the affluence, they could buy things they shouldn't go near. They could do things they shouldn't be doing. And so there was not only was it 
wealthy, if you would. They were immoral and very unethical. Whatever works for you, as long as, hey, you know, we have a thing in our system, caveat emptor. Ever heard of that? Let the buyer beware. I learned that in American government. The fact that I can quote it right now is a miracle of God, because I, I did AG my senior year, junior, I don't know. Anyway, the point being, we live in a time, of, hey, it's up to you to find out if I'm ripping you off. Really interesting. And you know, we, we, you, you know that I don't have to get into detail about how the, the world we live in is, is very unethical. And, and not only that, they lived in a time that was hyper-political. There were two camps, more or less. And, and not only was it hyper-political, it wasn't the politics were a form of puppetry. Because the people with money and influence were literally functionally, practically, and applicationally over the politicians. To where they influenced the politicians and the politicians then voted according to the preference of the people over them. Now, aren't you glad it's not like that now? (laughs) Of course it wouldn't be the same now. It's very much the same. So when we're reading through this, let's realize that we got to recognize this as Christians. There's different types of wisdom. And there's this wisdom that's a horizontal level. And and then there's this wisdom that's above. This this previously hidden truth. And, And he's saying here that even in the, the scope of life and historically what had happened recently for them is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so as he's speaking to them, he's saying, you know, you notice there in, in verse 7, the hidden wisdom of God ordained before the ages for our glory, which none of the rulers of this age knew. For had they known, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. The rulers, I, I believe it speaks of men... But honestly, we can't, um, we can't just be that contemporary or, or really that narrow-minded, if you would. I believe it also speaks according to Ephesians 6. Because in existence, in this world that you and I live in, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. The Bible says that in Ephesians 6. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood against each other. But against principalities and against rulers and against, you know, spiritual hosts of wickedness. There's all these things that are unfolding and yet we're not seeing it with our physical eyes, agreed? And so you think about, there's this spiritual battle that's been taking place. And the Bible's actually very specific and very clear about it. Satan, Lucifer, the devil, we're given a history on the guy, the being of the guy. And, and he, at one point, was, he led, if you would, to worship in heaven. And, and he rebelled. He basically thought he could be God, or equal to God, or Ursup, the, the throne of God. And in a short version, in a street language, he got dropped, kicked out of heaven, and took a third of heaven with him. And so now, he, is, he didn't quit. He continues to think he can actually, you know, dethrone God, if you would. His arrogant fail is he still thinks he can dethrone God. His attempt to kill the Messiah at birth was a fail. Agreed? Did he just say, oh, I lose, a bummer. No, what do we know that he did? Like, okay, I don't know who this child is. It seems that the, the, the word's being brought forth. And so, therefore, I will kill all the kids under the age of two in the area of Bethlehem. Do, do you see what he's trying to do? He's trying to prevent, he's reactionary in that sense. I mentioned these things because this is not yin and yang. It's not like, 
there's good force, and then there's an evil force. Sometimes the evil wins, sometimes the good wins. When it's all said and done, it's 51%, 49% good wins. It's not it. He's not all-knowing. Satan is not all-knowing. He doesn't have to know all. He can get by without four things. Manipulate the word of God. Tell them they can be God. You can be a God. You can be like, tell them that God's holding out. I'm just referring to the Garden of Eden. Tell them that God's holding out on them. And, and he, you, they're missing out on what they could have. And then you look, he did the same thing on the cross. Or not on the cross, but in his attempt to tempt Jesus. He, he tried to impart and imply that the word of God was not accurate to the Lord. Why do I say all that? Well, because Satan... His attempt to kill the Messiah at birth was a fail. His attempt to kill Jesus on the cross was an eternal fail. The death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ conquered all agents of evil, including their master Satan. And what we see from this text is this reminder that it's not wait and see who wins. He's making, they didn't even know. Let's, th- let's face it. Had they known, because I, I don't think they knew, had they known that crucifying this person they knew as Jesus would actually accomplish God's greatest victory, it would fulfill his prophecy, it would be doing his work, had they known they wouldn't have done it because they're his enemies. Do you see where I'm going with all this? we got to recognize it, man. Even Paul was saying, it's a, it's a, in, a, in this realm, in this world, God has accomplished things that we don't even recognize because we're trying to reason at this level. He said they wouldn't have known. They crucified the Lord of glory. One of the most powerful and, 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 and deep statements and, and names that are given to, to God, specifically to Jesus. The Lord, the ruler of glory. The Lord of glory. When was he glorious? Hanging on the cross, a brutal, horrific picture of victory? It didn't look like it to you and I in the wisdom of this world. But when he went to the grave, into the tomb, and rose from the dead, he conquered death and hell. The most graphic, horrifying image for you and I is the cross, and yes, that's the victory of God. He's glorious then. Do you see what I'm saying? So the wisdom, the way of this world's thinking doesn't line up. That's why when you tell somebody that Jesus died on the cross for their sins, if they're thinking at this level, they're going, that's weird. You're a weirdo. They don't get it. Guess what? They're, le- they're reasoning at this level, and you're looking at this level. You're looking heavenly, trying to concept to grasp these concepts and these truths. And, and this is what he says. He's like, the world didn't get it. The spiritual realm really didn't get it. And, and they didn't even have it. As it is written there in verse 9, Eye has not seen, nor ear heard, nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. Amazing. To me, I process this. I could spend maybe a couple weeks on this portion alone. What God has for those who love him. Early on in our marriage with Kim and I, I was in my early 20s. I didn't want anything to do with church. I didn't want anything to do with churchy people. I don't care what they called themselves. I didn't, I didn't even care about the, what they presented as subcategories by you know, belief or whatever. I just don't want anything to do with it. It seemed to me like, what a waste of a life. 
You don't get to do anything. You're bound to having to waste your Sunday morning in church. You can't go have fun with your friends. You can't go do anything. I like, I don't get it. And now, over 30 years as a Christian, I realize there's no greater joy that I have. There's no, I'm amazed. When I look at this, the things which God has prepared for those who love him. We respond to his love. It's brought to us. We, we receive it when, when we agree with God that we need his forgiveness. When we acknowledge our personal sin, you don't have to, be, you don't have, to have the whole list done because you're going to learn it as you go. But you have to agree with the reality you're guilty of sin. And when you agree with God and you believe in, that he is the only answer, the Bible says that you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. We're told that we're, we're born again at that point. And, and, and now we have this love that is proven by the cross and the resurrection implanted, imparted a part of us through the person of the Holy Spirit indwelling within us. We now have the capacity and the desire to love in ways we've never loved before. And, and I look at my life and I look at where some of my values and some things I thought were so important. And even my apprehension as a young Christian we had a, a, a wonderful relative, a grandparent type, that, that said, don't go too far with this church thing. And man, I thought, that's, a, that's really smart. That's good wisdom. Yeah, at this level, at this level, because it was perceived that that, oh, it'll just destroy your life. And she's right. Religion will destroy your life. But a relationship with Jesus Christ and growing in intimacy and understanding his presence and knowing his correction and being comforted by his, who he is, I, I, I know a love, I, I, can't imagine, I can't describe it. You know, like I, I get up here and share. I get to share every week. I get to share the same outline. You get to read along with me. I don't have to produce a purposeful message. I don't have to come up with a new book. I don't have to develop concepts. I just get to walk through hoping the Lord spoke to me and I get to do this. It's terrifying. People go, oh, you seem so at ease up there. You just seem so, it seems so natural to you. No, I don't even eat before service. Because I don't want to barf. I mean, literally, I'm, I've been doing this for 30 years. You think at some point you'd be so content. No. It's like, I don't like being in front of people. I don't like that. But what an amazing thing I get to do. I get to share the truth of eternity with you, and you get to have the comfort of knowing you get to walk through the same outline. Well, is that Dan's doctrine? Is this Second Daniel that he's reading out of? No, it's, it's, it's right here. You get to read with me. And, and I can't express how much the things God has prepared because... I received his love. Now, you could say, well, that's unique to you. No, it's not. You get to do the same. You get to share the love of God with the people around you. And sometimes you get to use words. Sometimes you get to, well, you get to, you get to do these things that change. They change people's life for eternity. They take them out of the grip of hell in this miry clay the Bible talks about and translates, puts them on this glorious rock of Jesus Christ, this life. We, we're a part of that. We're invited to be a part of that. There's, that's an amazing love. That's an amazing thing that God has said. We have the, these things he's prepared for those who love him. You have the capacity within you as a born-again believer to love beyond your own preset limitations. You have preset limitations. Agreed? Can we agree on that? 
So I will love someone who's lovable. I'll love someone who's nice. I'll love someone who kind of, you know, don't look at me like I'm the only one going this direction. Somebody who's mean, rude, obnoxious, get thee behind me. Get away from me. That's our natural level. Just admit it. But you have the capacity now to love in a way that you didn't love before. Your presets have been reset. And now you have the capacity to love. You, you weep. You pray. You, you can't sleep at night because you're concerned about someone who you can tell they're just not right with God. It may be a, a child. It may be a relative. It may be a neighbor. It may be a coworker. You're disturbed within because you're concerned for them. You didn't used to be that way, agreed? You just didn't. And if you thought you did, you need to think. Because it really, it's like, wow, this is teaching. I can live and love at a higher level. Because it's God in you, in me, working through us for his purpose. I, would, I can't put a high enough exhortation or value on this. The, the things God has prepared for those who love him. The things I used to pursue have been really just inadequate. You know what I'm talking about? I remember back, even as a young Christian, I still wanted to pursue certain things. And I would get there, and I would catch them, and I would get hold of them. And it would be disappointing. It would be like an accomplishment, an accolade, a prize, a position. And I'd take hold of it like, eh. And then, oh, shiny thing, squirrel. And I'd grab the next one. And I'd pursue that one, and I'd take a hold of it. And I, I'm not going to get into the detail in my own life of what God, he connected me with people that were really good in the areas I was interested. Really good, like from a secular level, pro level. And he connected me with these people. And everything I took hold of was like, that just wasn't it. And then I you know, just gradually started to realize, this is, this is what the soul of Dan is looking for. A closer relationship, this awareness of God's love. This love that comes from above, beyond what we deserve, more than we, what we could imagine, a love that forgives us. More than forgiving us, God gives us new life, born again, born of the Holy Spirit. And, and that's what we see he goes transitions into in verse 10. And we'll read verses 10 through 12 together, or I'll just read that to you as you can read it on the screen. But God has revealed to them, revealed them, speaking of these truths, to us through his spirit, for the spirit searches all things. Yes, the deep things of God. For what man knows the things of a man except the spirit of the man within him? Even so, no one knows the things of God except the spirit of God. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might know the things that have been freely given to us by God. So here we're told something that Jesus told his disciples so their relationship, you understand, was a little bit different from a historical perspective. They were the very unique generation that engaged with Jesus physically, but also seen his ascension. They're the ones who he instructed, listen, this is going to be different. I'm going to be here for a while, and then I'm going to depart, and you won't see me anymore. But don't freak out. Don't freak out. I'm going to send one, a parakletos, a helper, a comforter, who basically what he's saying is, it, it's me in another person. It's me in the spirit that will be with you. Turn with me if you would. We'll bring it up on project in John chapter 14, verse 26. He says these things while he's 
present with his disciples. Now, this is his words of encouragement functionally hours before the cross. Before they take the field, so to speak, this is what he's saying to them that they would hold on to tightly. The helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things that I said to you. So here we see that Jesus is saying, listen, this person, don't mistake the Holy Spirit to be merely an essence or a power or an influence. The Bible is very specific about the triunity of God. That there's the Father, who is God, there's the Son, and there's the Holy Spirit, one God in three personages, the triunity of God. So here, Jesus is saying this, the helper will come, and you can see it, it's Jesus speaking about the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send. Some have said, well, the Bible doesn't say Trinity. I don't know what Bible you're reading, but I can count to three. And they're all represented right here. So there's the triunity of God. We see it right here. And he says that he will what, do what? Teach you all things and bring to your remembrance the things that I said to you. I mentioned this recently. I've said it actually frequently. I, every time I say it, I, before I even verbalize it as I'm working through whether to say it, I have to check myself and see if it's an accurate statement. It's a definitive statement. And I'm still saying it, so obviously I figured out it's okay, right? The greatest need in the world today is for God's people to know his voice and obey in his power for his glory and their joy. Now, what's so definitive about that? The greatest need in the world today, is it? Yes, I believe it is. Because God has empowered, invited, enabled us to be his messengers in this world. He's, he, that, and that, that, we know that's what this dark world needs, is light from heaven from above. And he has invited us to be his spokesman. So the greatest need is for us as his children to know his voice. What is he saying? What is he prompting? Where is he leading us? What is he speaking to us as he keeps us together in unity, but speaks through us individually, empowering us to be interdependent, but yet a light into the world? The greatest need is for God's children to know his voice and obey in his power, literally his strength. Because if you're doing it in your strength, it's just religion. But realizing we, we're, we, we got, how is it that we develop a sensitivity, a spiritual ears to hear what he's saying? Because the Bible repeats things, and when it repeats them, it's using valuable space. So if it's repeating it, there's a purpose. And if then it repeats it a second time, it's like, oh yeah, better pay attention. And multiple times, you once again got to go, wait, wait a minute, I, I'm, I'm getting a theme here. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the people, to the messengers, to the churches. We, we see that even in the, new, in the Gospels and then again in Revelation. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what, what is God speaking to us. And it's a challenge. I, I would love to stand before you and to speak with bold confidence and almost like, compel you to do what I do. But here's my dilemma. I don't like lying. It's not a good idea. Not even from anywhere, but especially not from the pulpit. Where am I going with this? Well, I can't discern, I can't tell initially whether something that's going through my head is my idea, an atmosphere, environmental, a form of imagination, or inspiration. Inspiration speaking of God. 
Can you relate to me? I know I've been teaching for 30 years. I should be able to give you a formula and say, well, you do it like this and like this, and then God's obligated to respond to your obedience. Because that's just offensive. We could somehow create a formula that God would be obligated to. But think about it. You have an idea, but do you know that it's from God? I can't tell mine sometimes. I have maybe an idea with some imagination, and then it could be this, and we could do that. But I don't know if it's inspired of the Lord or just rooted in desires. So what do I do? I say, okay, Lord, I'm not sure on this. This is of you or of me. So I'm just going to keep my nose in your word. God, give me just a sense of what you want to do or what you're doing. I want to know whether this is of you. I want to have an ear to hear what you're saying. Because that's the greatest need in this world, the greatest need in our own lives that we would learn to trust. Let's move over from John 14, 26 to John 16, verse 13. This is once again, Jesus given his disciples, which are you and I, followers of Christ, committed to serving, surrendered to him. He's given those who seek him, he's given them um, kind of an insight of how it's going to be, ultimately for you and me. Speaking of the Holy Spirit, when he comes, however, when he, the spirit of truth has come, notice this, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will tell you things to come. He will glorify me, for he will take up what is mine and declare it to you. All things that the Father has are mine. Therefore, I said that he will take, care, take of mine and declare it to you. Once again, the triunity of God revealed within that short portion, but hopefully you can see the application I'm drawing you to. He will guide you into all truth. That's why it's so important that we develop spiritual ears. You may think that that sounds physical or natural, but it's not. It's love-oriented. I could use an example that you can relate to. Right now, if a small child, say a toddler age, we could hear them crying. You could hear from there. Most of you guys won't hear it. Many of the women won't hear it because you don't have a toddler at that age. But those of you that have a toddler of that age, you're like, your, your, spirit, your, your, your physical ears are trying to discern, is that my kid that's going crazy? Or is it someone else's child? Because mine's loving and kind and somebody else's might not be. You know what I'm saying? I mean, there's, just, there's, like, there's this, because guess what? You're trying to discern the voice. You're trying to work through. Can we see the analogy, the comparison to where we just develop a sensitivity? God, is that you or is that me? What, what is it you speaking to me? We want to have, we want to be able to, to know he would walk us into all truth. Now, here's the beautiful part about this. He doesn't allow us to interpret it ourselves. He literally says he will guide you into all truth. Well, how do you know truth? Especially in an age when people say that's your truth. No, truth is truth. It's what really is, by simple definition. So he will guide you into all truth. He'll always bring you to the word. Jesus said of himself, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He said of the word and himself, we see in John chapter 1, that the word was with God and from God. We know the word. So we heard, oh, that's interesting, logos. But later in John chapter 1, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Do you see where I'm going with this? He reveals truth. He walks us through the truth. The Holy Spirit will direct you to Jesus Christ. He will not draw attention to himself. This text is very clear about that. 
He doesn't draw attention to himself. Oh, the Spirit did this and the Spirit did that. And he directs you and I to Jesus Christ. Well, Jesus said, in the beginning was the Word, and then we're told that he is the Word. So it directs us to a relationship, in a bare minimum, a red-letter review. And immersing ourselves in the Word of God to know if what we're sensing is from God. Your verification, your validation, your, your confidence is what I can feel compelled, what I'm sorting out. It's settled, it's revealed in the Word. It's so important, so important, because you're prone to whims. I'm prone to whims and certain preferences. But we want to make sure what we're choosing to do, and we're hearing from the Lord, that we are literally responding to the direction of the Holy Spirit. And, and I just, I know it's one of the greatest needs. I know it's one of the difficult things. I know right now, I have a, I call it my editor. It's this little thing in the back of my head that says, don't say it. Uh, I just don't listen to it very often. But I'm going to say it, so bear with me. Right now, listening online, Sitting in this audience, standing before you, we're weak. We're encumbered. We're spiritually weakened and not very powerful people. Why is that? I believe it's because we're trying to do something for God without having the patience to listen to God. I really believe that. I know it of my own life. I don't say it in any sense of like, ah, yeah, no. But that doesn't mean I quit. That means I say, you know, I want to know the will of God. I want to know the word of God. I want to know the voice of God. I don't want to try to manipulate it and elevate myself above people. I just want to know, God, is this what you'd have me to do? Is this what you're directing me to? Is this what you're empowering me to do? I don't have to have a tremendous amount of detail. I just have to have a sense that this is what God is directing me to, you to. Let's jump back to 1 Corinthians 2 verse 13. The things which we also speak, not in words, which man's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Spirit teaches, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. You see, the Holy Spirit wants to teach you and me. We can pray. I had a beautiful time for, you know, national even, for the National Day of Prayer. It's beautiful. And I believe what we always want to recognize, we can pray. Prayer is conversation. But we also got to learn to listen. I know the last few times I've spoke to the Lord, but I also want to know when I've heard from the Lord. Does that make sense? Because that is prayer. It's not just a practice and a discipline in doing things. It's seeking him and going, okay, Lord, teach me. And the Holy Spirit who dwells within you, he leads you and guides you in this. Some people, you know, they're confused about the person, the role of the Holy Spirit, and that's why I'm belaboring this and going through in more detail. It's a very intimate, personal thing. He's the gentleman. He's Jesus who indwells us, the Holy Spirit the, the, of, the, of the triunity of the Godhead. He, he indwells us in allegiance, and it says that he, he, he teaches us, comparing spiritual things with spiritual, revealing to us from the word what is truth. Spiritual is spiritual. It's not open to your whims or preferences or opinions or even background. We need to be compelled and moved and stirred by a, a personal relationship with the living God. And that, that element is so important. It goes on to say in verse 14, but the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit or the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. But he who is spiritual judges all things, yet he himself is rightly judged by no one. Very interesting, the Greek word used for discern, you know, it speaks of um, to, to investigate or to examine 
So the natural man can't just examine heavenly truths and go, oh, I get it. Before they're, they're spiritually heavenly discerned. But what's interesting in this, as you notice in the end of verse 14, that it uses the word spiritually discerned or examined. And then in verse 15, it says, he was spiritual judges all things. It's interesting that the translators use two different words for the same Greek word. It's the same Greek word. The content of the, the, con- the, the structure of the sentence drives the, the, the choice of words to a degree. But notice this. He was spiritual judges. In other words, investigates, examines, sifts, scrutinizes. He works these things through because he, is he's sorting these things out. You know, he's, he, he, he stores all things out. He himself is rightly scrutinized by no one. Why does it say that? Remember, chapter 1 and chapter 3, division was abounding. And he's saying, now, you, you, you're not judged by anyone. You, you stand before the Lord. But that doesn't allow you to be independent when you're created as interdependent. The body of Christ implies, conveys clearly interdependence. The liver doesn't get to go Lone Ranger, okay? This doesn't get to relocate and do its own thing. It, it, there's the interdependency that's so, so essential. And so as we're sorting these things out and we realize, you know, we're, we're not being judged by other men, but rather, as you see, we have the mind of Christ because we, we, we have, we're to know his will and live in his ways, not up to our own opinion. You know, in, in verse 16 is out of Isaiah 40, verse 13, and that whole context is, is arguing that man does not enlighten God but God will enlighten men. Those who are born again have received him. He enlightens from the inside out, from the heart to the head, he teaches us. His enlightenment actually brings his children together, does not push them apart. See, it's more natural wisdom, worldly wisdom that produces division and a lot of problems and complication within the body of Christ. I got to hit the brakes right there. So um, we're going to have communion today. And I want to mention just the simplicity of what God created because I know some people deal with the complexity that man has created in regards to communion. In some situations, you have to be qualified by the organizing group to be able to participate in communion. You have to be approved, so to speak. And I don't misunderstand me. I, I get some of the motive behind some of that so that you won't do it just too flippantly. But I want to say this. This is very simple. The Bible is very clear. Jesus said when he implemented, instituted, put into practice what we call communion, he said this. As often as you do this, do it in remembrance of me. So he's talking to his followers. As often as you do this, do what? In remembrance of me. If, you, if you're not born again, if you haven't committed your life to Christ, if you're not walking with Jesus, you don't have anything to remember. But as a Christian, you have plenty to remember. And so he's just saying, as a follower, as often, what, after every service, after every meal, whatever, as often as you do it, do it in remembrance of him. It's so beautiful if you think about it. He took something that's so personal and so, I believe, powerful, because it reminds you and me that he gave his life that you may live. He died, his blood was poured out to cleanse you and me from our sin, personally, privately, and perfectly. 
What an amazing thing. What an expression of love that he would do that, that we could have this relationship with him. So as the worship team is going to come up and we're going to, uh, we're going to participate, take communion together. If you choose to take communion, it's an individual choice. We just provide a public opportunity. Choose to take communion as a follower of Jesus Christ. The elements are on either side of the stage, of course. There's some in the back. And so during this song of worship, it'll be that opportunity for you to come up and pick up the elements. And then as you return to your seat, just hold on to them if you would, and we'll, we'll, we'll take them together. So will you stand with me? We're going to uh, we'll pray together, and, and then the worship team will lead us. It's important that we prepare our hearts, I believe, to take communion as believers. We're told in 1 Corinthians later that to examine your heart, to examine and, and make sure you're in a worthy state. Don't misunderstand what that's saying. It's not weighing out and seeing if you've been good enough and given enough and doing enough and therefore you can go ahead and take communion because that's works oriented. It, it really is where you would say, I would use this as a summary statement to convey the point. Search me and see if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. The, the right mindset, the examination says, God, I, I don't have it all together. Well, you do, and you've saved me. So where I need change, bring about change. Where I need correction, bring about correction. Where I need comfort, I, I'm before you, you're my Lord. That's the whole point of examining your heart. Like, God, I just want to be right with you. And then as you're doing that in your heart of hearts, in your own existence, so to speak, you just take communion. It's a reminder of what he's done for you. Let's pray. God, thank you for your great grace. Thank you for your love. Thank you that you have implemented this very basic practice, basic in how we go about it, profound in what it presents, that we would be saved by you, your body given for us, your blood poured out for us. An expression of love we can't grasp on a horizontal plane. An invitation from above to walk close with you, recognizing that you chose the cross that we could live. You chose to die that we could live. You chose to literally be put to death, your blood poured out to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It's too deep. It's too amazing at a horizontal level, but that we would know more and more the majesty and the magnitude of your love, God. So we sing this song to you. We thank you. We remember you. Prepare our hearts, God, as we recognize what you've done for us. It's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. Amen.